Numbers chapter 21. It's the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapter 21. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you one so you can follow along with us. Numbers chapter 21 is where we'll be at today. It's the fourth book of the Bible. In case you're like, where's the book of Numbers? Just count to four. You'll find it. Uh, But Numbers 21, again, welcome. So glad you guys are here. Uh, Tonight will be in some ways just more reflective in nature. Uh, We want to just take some time and slow down and look at the cross. What happened at the cross? Why the cross? Um, Why do we come together for the last 2,000 years on Good Friday and celebrate Good Friday? Why do we call it Good Friday? Uh, If you think about it, this was not originally Good Friday. The first time the disciples experienced Friday, it was Bad Friday. Uh, It didn't become Good Friday until many years later when they could look back and be like, that day that was so painful for us was actually a really good day. And so we want this to just be a time where we can kind of look back, slow down, take a deep breath. You know, every year we come to, uh, or I've come to a Good Friday, there's a side of it's like, where do we begin? And uh, there's so many of the classic texts we can go to. And here's kind of our hope for just, I guess you could say this weekend. Uh, Our hope is to look at the story of the cross from the Old Testament and the story of the resurrection from the Old Testament. Uh, I want you to see that the cross is not something that the New Testament church made up. That the fact that God must suffer and die and rise is not a New Testament idea, it's a Bible idea. And so we wanted to see this from the very beginning. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, we, we see the cross and hints at the cross. Uh, there's a verse we'll show up here so you can kind of see it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now the main point is Christ died for our sins. And that's what we're going to talk about, we're going to look at. But according to the scriptures, so what is Paul referring to? When Paul is talking about these Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, where do we see the death of Christ? Where do we see the idea of the cross or the tree or the pole or the bush? Where do we see this idea of just the Messiah suffering, bleeding, dying? And so we do want to look at the story of the cross from the Old Testament. Um, I think this is going to be so important for us to see that there's just hints at this throughout this. This was God's plan all along. So our hope tonight is really just to kind of slow down and say, hey, the cross is not some new idea that the church or Christians made up. I mean, this is something, this is God's sovereign plan from the very beginning. And so we want to see how the cross is just foreshadowed in different stories, in different pictures, in different types. That is our hope today as we go through this. And again, if you're wondering why the cross, why do Christians gather on Good Friday? I love how Billy Graham put it. He simply said this, the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. And so there's a side of the cross where you go, you you should feel the weight of the cross. You should feel the weight. It shows the seriousness of our sin, but you also kind of see how that weight's relieved, that that weight is lifted off. And so this almost just feels incomplete. Whenever I teach on like a Good Friday, in my mind, it's like it feels incomplete because in reality, it's like you you need Friday and you need Sunday. And you need, Sunday needs Friday as well. And so in some ways, I, I hope, I hope in some ways that you must leave tonight and go, that didn't feel complete. Yes, I know. Wait till Sunday because <laughs> you need both sides. And so uh, we're going to read this and I'm probably going to sit again most of the night because I, as I mentioned last week, and I had surgery on my ankle about 10 days ago. And so I might sit most of the time. Uh, but let's read Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9. Numbers chapter 21. We're going to just read this story, as crazy it might sound, and then we'll just pray and look at it more in depth. But Numbers chapter 21, look at verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
for there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless manna, heavenly bread. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we, listen, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. We're going to look at this kind of bizarre story in just a moment, uh, but let's pray. Let's just ask God to be here to speak to us, and uh, let this be a time where we can just really enjoy what really took place on the cross and how the Old Testament foreshadows the cross time and time again. Can we do that? Can we pray? Father, we just thank you again for the time to slow down, to look at your word. God, we ask that you just speak to us, that you'd move, that Jesus, um, I know there's many thoughts or ideas that many people have grown up with this, and they love Good Friday. Many people may be just new to this. But God, we just ask that you'd speak. We ask that the beauty and the horror of the cross, that both sides to it would do something to our heart. And so, Lord, we just ask that you'd move and speak your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We as people, we love quests. We love missions. We love to go on journeys. We love to experience that. We love when someone leaves their home, they leave their land, and they go on a far distant journey, right, where they know there's going to be hardship. They're maybe looking for something. They're trying to find a new location. Uh, But you think about some of those famous quests. Think about some of those famous missions or quests, right? You have like Frodo in the ring, Bilbo in Lonely Mountain. You have Shrek in donkey trying to find Fiona. I mean, there's some phenomenal quests out there. Uh, My son, Micah, who's three years old, almost four, he's at a place where he loves missions. Like, he loves to go on a mission because of the show called Puppy Dog Pals, where they go on a mission. If you're a parent who has, like, three, you'll get that. Uh, But he likes likes the idea of quests. He likes the idea of missions. And so we actually play this game in our home. There's, like, this carpet we have where we play this game called Australia. Uh, I talk in an Australian accent, which is terrible. I'm not going to do that. And my three-year-old tries to mimic me, and if you haven't heard a three-year-old talk with an Australian accent, it's a must. It's great. but he just tries to make it mean. It's just, it's awful. So we pretend our rug's basically Australia, and we'll literally like swim on the rug, and we'll go looking for sharks. And he'll try with his little accent, like, Dad, I can't even do it. He's like, Dad, it's purple and gold. I'm like, yes, like the Lakers. Good job, son. You know, and he'll like, like point out fish. He'll make them up. He'll literally stick his head on the ground and just point at nothing. But it's a fun game that we play. I mean, he loves to go on quests. He loves to go outside our house, go to the canal, and he loves to chase iguanas. He loves to go on missions and quests. And, and here's the idea. I, I think, honestly, this is just innate, meaning I think all of us are on a quest. I think all of us are on a quest for something, for some experience, for some person, for meaning, for value, for purpose, for eternal life. Everyone's on a quest. And I really do want you to think about the heart of man. It almost seems like we go from one quest to the next. I tried this thing out, didn't satisfy me, let me go to this quest. I tried this person out, no, nah, it's okay, let me go to this person. And we go from quest to quest, mission to mission, trying to fill this void. And I do really believe that God has made it that way, that God has designed it that way. This is a verse that, to me, just summarizes human nature. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, but it says that God has placed, in the verses up here, God has placed eternity into man's heart. Just, just think through that. God has placed eternity into men's heart and women's hearts. There is something within all of us that has this like eternal void. 
I think that's why people go, um, you know, I can work the nine to five, I can make a lot of money, I can go do this, do that, but I still feel, feel empty. Like, what is that? How do we all kind of walk through life and go, I, I want to experience this, I want to go through this, but at the end of the day, I still feel like there's something missing. And I do believe because God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. And here's this idea. I think we're all on that quest to find eternity. You know, we, we are funny. We are funny people. We'll spend a lot of money to try to live longer, to look like we are going to live longer. We'll like cryogenically now freeze ourselves or certain like our head or body parts. We spend money, tons of money on minerals and vitamins and surgeries. There's this thing within men and women that we just want to live forever. Even if it's not living forever, we want to do something very significant in this life. Why? We want to leave a legacy. And what is that? Why is this idea of wanting to live forever? Because God has placed eternity into your hearts. There's something that we realize, I want to experience eternity, and here's, here's what the Bible tells us. Um, you and I can never fill an eternal void with temporal things. God has placed this eternal void in our heart, and it's only going to be fulfilled by an eternal God. You know, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we rest in you, O God. Like, why is it that next quest, that next thing, that next big deal, making more money, making more, doesn't satisfy like I thought it would. I got it, and it didn't satisfy like I thought it would. Because there's this quest for eternal life I believe we're all on. And here's why I'm saying this. Uh, one author said, the quest of the Bible is for the tree of life. The quest of the entire Bible. So after Adam and Eve sinned, fell, we'll look at that. The quest from day one is how can we find this tree of life again? How can we live forever again like God intended us to, to live? So I want to point out something. On this Good Friday, talking about the story of the cross, talking about this idea of the tree, there are three significant trees in the Bible. Three significant trees. If you want, you can write them down, take note, remember this. First tree is this, in case you are taking notes. We see the tree of life. The next significant tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the next tree is the tree of salvation, the cross. There's three really significant trees. Now, let me just throw some verses at you so we can like, walk through this, because I really do believe we're all on this hunt for this tree. We're all looking for this tree that will bring us life. And so let me just kind of point. Let's go back to the beginning. Can we do that really quick? All right, if you want, you can read this or turn there, look at it. We'll throw it up here. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord made every tree, uh, and made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God made all the trees, all the trees God made. But there's two significant ones, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What happened next? Genesis 2 verse 16. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so God made all these trees. There's two significant ones. They eat this one tree that can live forever. They eat this other tree, it leads to death. Now, you know, here's why. Like, why does God even put that there to begin with? Um, I, be, I believe, honestly, simply put, because God loves us that God wants to know if we have love reciprocated back. If God made, if there's no tree, no option, there's not really an option for us to really choose him to follow him. For example, if I'm the last or the only man on planet earth, there's three billion women, four billion women, and there's me and Kimber, my wife chooses me. She didn't do it probably because like, I, I'm, I'm limited options for her, right? Like the idea is like there had to be options. So God's like, I love you. I'm gonna create, I'm gonna create all these trees. And there's a tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one, the day you eat of this, you're going to surely die. What happens next? Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
this verse right here is what we call the fall. It's a really weird word to say basically this is where corruption came into the world, where sin, where disease, this is where it plagued not just the physical world but the hearts of men and women. Where why do we see sickness, disease, cancer? Why do we see evil, murder, rape, incest? Why do we see these things? Because of this moment. And we see that God even said to them in Genesis 2.16, the day that you eat of this, he says you will surely die. In Hebrew it is you will die, die. He's literally saying the day you eat this, you will die, die. You'll die physically, you'll die eternally, you'll die. It just brings death. Don't eat it. I'm giving you this option because I love you, and I want you to choose your love for me, but don't eat of this fruit, you'll die. So they ate of it. And know what God does in his grace? What God does in his, his incredible grace is he kicks them out of the garden. And that is crazy grace. Here's why. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 22. We'll throw the verse up again so you can read it. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what God did in his grace. He goes, you ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you now in this broken state to eat of the tree of life. I don't want you to live forever in this broken place. So I'm gonna kick you out of the garden. And I think ever since then, ever since that moment, man's been on a quest. This quest for the tree of life. This quest, I want to have that meaning and value that I once had. I want to live forever. And God's like, no, you can't eat of this tree. So then God offers us a third tree. And the third tree is the tree of salvation. It's the cross. The third tree is saying, hey, but if you eat of this tree, then you can eat of the tree of life. See, why do I call the cross the tree? Peter put it this way. Peter called the cross the tree. We'll throw the verse up. First Peter 2. Peter said, Jesus himself, listen, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were strained like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the gospel because Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree. Ever since we were kicked out of the garden, Ever since God's like, let me protect the tree of life, the way to the tree of life. There's this idea of, I still want to live forever though. And God's like, but you can't eat of it because you'll just live forever in this broken state. But here's what Peter says. There's another tree. See, the third tree is the tree of salvation. The third tree is the cross. You see, the idea is that Jesus bore his sins on our, he took our sin, our shame, our death, so we could have his life. And the idea that the Bible tells us now is this, hey, believers in Jesus, you will eat of the tree of life now. You can eat of the tree of life. That it's interesting how the Bible starts in a garden, and if you read Revelation, it ends in a garden. And if we're trying to move back to this garden-like state, we see that heaven's described as a city and yet a garden. And I love that. I love both. There's times like, I love the city life. There's times I'm like, get me out of that and let me be in the garden. And we see that, the, that heaven's described as a city garden. I'm curious how that's going to look. But he describes this idea of like, let us get back to the tree of life. And here's what Jesus says to those who overcome. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, listen. It says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, listen. If you believe in Jesus, let me just tell you this. Jesus said it. You will one day eat of the tree of life. If you believe in Jesus, receive the goodness and grace of God, you, Jesus is your Lord, your Savior, can I tell you, you'll eat of the tree of life and you will live forever. Why? Because Jesus already purged our sins. The idea is when we see Jesus, 1 John 3, we will be like Jesus. And he'll say, hey, you can eat of the tree. This quest for the, to live forever, it will be satisfied. The quest for more, it will be satisfied. 
What you and I are looking for, what every person seems to be just journeying for, it's satisfied in the cross, the tree of salvation, and he takes us back to the tree of life. You follow me? You tracking with me so far? So here's the idea. Adam brought in sin, the curse, the fall. Adam brought in death, but Jesus, the last Adam, brought in life. Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, uh, Paul said it this way, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even, listen, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Good news? He goes, Adam brought sin and death, but through this other, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he brought in life a greater grace. So here's why we're here today. We're here, to say, we're here today to say, hey, there's been three trees that have, have really kind of defined human history. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, which we should have eaten the first time, and then the idea is that Jesus introduces us to the tree, the cross, the tree of salvation. Now here's why I'm bringing this up, because listen, ever since Adam and Eve ate of that tree, we've been on this quest for the tree, as I mentioned, and here's why I'm bringing this up over and over and over again. Because in the Old Testament, there's been these signs, these foreshadows, these pictures, these analogies of, hey, there will be this tree, this, this cross-like, this pole-like, this, this thing that you'll look to for salvation. And it's been pointing to that third tree from the very beginning. So you need to get back to, you want to get back to the garden? You want to eat of the tree of life? Well, you need to first experience the tree of salvation, the cross. And so here in Numbers 21, we have a very bizarre and unique story, but if you read it through, it is one of the most complete pictures of the gospel and of the cross, I think, in the Bible. So let's just reread this. Can we reread this a little bit slower and break this down? All right, Numbers 21, look at verse 4. Numbers 21, verse 4, we'll just read a few verses here. It says that they, the, the children of Israel, when they journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Let's first of all, let's just look at the problem, the problem. Um, if you're with us a few weeks ago, we're, we're in the book of Philippians currently, and there's a verse that says, do all things without complaining, disputing. We kind of talked about this. Here's the idea. The nation of Israel is constantly complaining. God saves them from Egypt as slaves, and they go, we wish we could go back and be slaves because they had better food. God gives them this heavenly bread called manna that every day they just collect this heavenly sweet bread the way the Bible describes it, and they're going, we're so sick of this bread. God sends them quail, and God's like, eat meat, and there's just so much meat that just it says it comes out of their nostrils. God's like, okay, you, I'm giving you thing, everything you're asked for, I'm giving you. You want water? Here's water, and they're just complaining, 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 and just like many of you parents have said, if you want, you know, to keep complaining, I'll give you something to complain about, and God sends fiery serpents. Now, here's where this can frustrate many of us, and we've got to talk through this. People will look at this and say, what a vindictive God. What, what a God who just responds of emotion. And, and here's what I want us to see. It says God sent them fiery serpents. That just simply means venomous serpents. And here's why I think this is so significant. God's trying to show them where the true venom lies. God's trying to show them the snakes, they're fiery, they're venomous snakes, but the true venom is not in the bite of the snake, it's in the bite of sin. The true venom lies in all of our hearts. This thing plagues all of us. There's something God's trying to show them and saying, you need to see the seriousness of sin. It's weird how we can do this as just Americans, as people, but we can look and say, oh, 
in the 1940s, that moment, that time, that era, that, that was bad, that was wicked. Some of those things happened. And we look at sin always as like way distant over there, that people group, that person, individual. When the Bible is trying to say no, it plagues all of our hearts. See, I want you to see something. Here's a little bit of a turning point in this moment. After people are being bit by the snake, they go to Moses and they say something not pretty profound. They go, we have sinned. We have talked poorly against God. Now, here's why I think this is important. They didn't say, yeah, we've sinned, but come on, is this really worth the punishment? Like, yeah, we've sinned, but did you have to send fiery snakes? There was complete ownership. There's not this, yeah, we've sinned, but come on, like, why did you have to go this far? There was a side of, we, we've sinned. We've really sinned. We've gone too far. Here, here's this, I think this is what I think is so profound. They stopped blame shifting at this moment. They stopped putting off the blame on someone else. Yeah, but God, if you did this, yeah, I would never have said that. They stopped blaming. I really do believe that spiritual healing happens when blame shifting ends. When you can look on and say, it's not them, it's not that person, it's not the government, it's not this person, it's me. It's in my heart. The problem lies within me, not some other person, not some other democracy in, in my heart, God. It, it lies within me. And so this is going on. They're being bit by these snakes. And, and here's, look at verse 6 again, if you would, just so you can kind of see it. Uh, but verse 6 says, they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Now, I, I do want to just share one little quick thought with you. Um, a guy named John Stott, an old school author that I really like, and I've quoted him once or twice maybe, uh, he said this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. I really do think Christians, as before you see the cross as something done for you, it's done by you. Jesus, he, he died for my sins, but he died because of my sins. Like, I think we get that. Jesus died for my sins. It's beautiful. But do you also know that he died because of your sins, because of my sins? There's a side of this where we, we should feel the weight of this. It's not just done for us, but by us, because of us. We need to see the cross in that light. The idea of the snakes, as I mentioned, the serpents, the venomous serpents going around biting people. Um, remember we saw the serpent in the garden? The idea of the serpent is it represents sin, speaks of sin, of evil. And the idea is now, hey, everyone is being plagued by this sin, by this evil. Everyone's plagued. And what's happening next? Everyone's dying. What does the Bible say? Romans 3.23. All have sinned. All are plagued. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, you look at verse 6 and saying, hey, everyone's been plagued. Everyone's been bitten by sin. That applies to all of us. All have sinned. And then Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So they're getting bit and they're dying. And the Bible says the same thing. We're bit by this curse of sin, and then what happens? We die. Genesis, right? You will surely die. You will die, die. And we're seeing this take place over and over. It's almost like the garden is being reenacted all over again. The serpent comes death. This is happening. The serpent comes death. You follow me? The garden's being reenacted all over again in this moment. And now we're going to see the solution. So they confess their sin, but what happens in verse 8? If you would look at verse 8, so you can just read it with me. Verse 8 says it this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. All right. If you don't see it, let me just put it, this is to me the clearest picture of the gospel we see like, in the Old Testament outside of this, the story you can hear on Sunday. But it's like the clearest picture of the gospel. Everyone's been bitten by this thing called, called sin. The serpent speaks of sin, but here's what's interesting. The serpent not only speaks of sin, the serpent speaks of Jesus. And this is where it gets even more offensive. 
Jesus actually is going to use the story and say, this is me. I know you've heard this first. You might know this verse. We'll put it up here just in case you haven't. It's John chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, we'll throw the verse up here so you can see it. Jesus is speaking and says this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is talking to this guy named Nicodemus, this r- religious guy, this ruler, and he says, listen, you know this story. Just like the serpent had to be lifted up and all who look to it will be saved, I have to be lifted up so all who look to me will be saved. And what's really profound about this is the serpent we can agree with and go, yeah, that's a picture of sin. But Jesus is saying, no, the serpent is a picture of me. I'm going to take on sin. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to bear the sin of the world. I, the Son of God, am going to become the serpent. I'm going to become sin so that you can have life. You see, our God did not just enter creation. Our God did not just walk among us. Our God did not just live a humble life. He did not live in a palace. He lived a homeless life, according to his own words. But he also became, in a sense, the form of a serpent. He literally took on sin to the point where he goes, let me bear the curse that was experienced in the garden. Let me take this on. See, it's really interesting to me that God tells him, and he makes a brass serpent. God does not say, hey, take one of the snakes and tie it up to a pole and look at it. He goes, make a completely different snake, but make it out of brass and put it on a pole. And here's the idea. Um, we see brass in the scriptures mentioned a lot. The altar where people made sacrifices were, was made out of brass. Brass has been a picture of judgment. A serpent has been a picture of sin. And here's the idea of a brass serpent. Put the next slide up, up here, but brass serpent. So you have judgment, you have sin, and the idea God is saying sin is judged. So people are complaining. They're whining. They're crying out, God, we've sinned. And so God goes, put the brass serpent, put this, this sin, judge it up there. The sin of the people is now judged up there. And please hear that. The sin of the people is now judged up there. And here's the cross. The sin of the people is now judged up there. That Jesus is that brass serpent. That our sins have been judged on Jesus. That Jesus became that serpent. He took on the sin of the world. Our sins were placed on him. And so that's what we're looking to. That's what we look to in hope. That's what we look to for just life. I know this is like the verse for the exchange, and so I've, I've used this, and I'll use it until the day I die. But it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do we hear that? God made Jesus, who knew no sin, never sinned before, become sin. He's not saying that Jesus became sinful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he, became, he took on sin. He became sin. So God treated Jesus as though he treated the serpent. As God would have treated the serpent, he treated Jesus. The serpent needed to be judged. Sin needed to be judged. And Jesus took that. God's like, let me pour out the judgment on Jesus. You know, and this is where Jesus took on the curse of the garden. Where Jesus literally became the curse and absorbed the curse so you and I wouldn't have to. Now, I just want to point this verse out because please listen, please don't miss this and hear this, and I hope you can see how this ties in together. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul speaks about it in this way. He says, Christ, listen, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Let's go back to that tree thought. Just think with me. In Deuteronomy, it says, if anyone dies a death on a tree, they're cursed. And what does Jesus do? He dies a death on a tree. He becomes cursed. And so Paul says, look at Jesus. Jesus took on the curse of the garden, the curse of the tree. He took on the curse of mankind. He bore it. He is that brass serpent. The sins have been judged on Jesus. Look to Jesus. He bore the sin. He took it. He doesn't say curses everyone who is stoned to death. Curses someone who does that. Curses someone who hangs on a tree. 
That's in the book of Deuteronomy. That's an Old Testament thing. And then here comes Jesus who's hanging on a tree. Even as the Son of Man is lifted up, he says, I must be lifted up. I must become the serpent. I must take on the sin of the world. What was happening at the cross? Jesus was absorbing the sin of the world. Past, present, future. He was taking on this. He became the serpent that was judged. Our sin that day was judged on Jesus. And there's a side of this where all of us here at this moment in this time have to believe that, have to receive that, have to confess that and say, Jesus, I do believe my sin was judged that day. I received the forgiveness of sins from what you did for me on the cross that day. There's a moment in time where right now you have to believe that and confess that. See, either our sin is judged on Jesus or it's judged on us. And there's a side of this where you gotta say, I believe in this brass serpent. As crazy as this is, as crazy as it sounds, it's Jesus looking back and saying, hey, hey, religious person, you know this book. You know the brass serpent? Yeah, that's me. And this is so profound. I mean, this really did change like just so much of the world. I love how Luther put this. He, he said it this way. The beautiful, glorious, sinless Jesus at the moment of his crucifixion became the horrendous, despicable, disgusting, deplorable, wretched, ugly thing in all creation. So it's so weird to call this Good Friday. Jesus, we go, you're so beautiful. The sinless Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, we see that at a moment in time, he took on all the sin, and what was beautiful became, you could say, broken, disgusting, wretched, as he says here. You see, he became the curse. He absorbed the curse so we wouldn't have to. He took this judgment of sin so we wouldn't have to, and that is the idea. And that is why we're here today, and that is why we study this. And so much so that this serpent on the pole became like a famous symbol, where eventually Greek mythology would adopt this and kind of make their own form of it. It's something today we, many people in the health industry, or maybe you see a paramedic truck and you might see the symbol of like a serpent on a pole. Next time you see that and you're driving behind like an ambulance or something, you go, oh yeah. I don't even know if people realize like that's the gospel. Like it's cool you see like an ambulance driving like, oh, the gospel. You know, you see a serpent on the pole and you go, wow, my sins have been judged on that. Like that that's your like in for, I don't know, if you've ever heard, and they're t- putting you in a wheelchair or something. You're like, hey, that, yeah, that's gospel in the back of your car. Like it's just an in. The idea we just see, we just see this everywhere. And this changes everything. And, and I want to point out something really quick. I'm going to give you five little things because there's a lot of things that God did not ask Moses to do or ask the people to do. There's a lot that this communicates and a lot that it doesn't communicate. So I want you to see in this story, five quick, really quick things God does not ask them to do. Number one is this. We'll put it up here. Uh, the people were not to create their own healing ointment. The people were not to create their own healing ointment. It's like, oh no, you got bit by a snake. Okay, find some berries, crush them up, uh, put it on the spot that's sore, and you'll feel a lot better. They're not to do it themselves. They're not trying to fix it themselves. They never could. There's a side of this where they're helpless. There's a side of this where it's like, don't take on the weight. You could never heal yourself. Number two, second thought is, they did not help others in order to help themselves. So they're like, you're bit? Let me tend to you. It's like, oh, we're all bit. I can't help you. I gotta help, I gotta help me first. You've been on an airplane where it's like, hey, don't assist someone if it drop, uh, one of those mass falls. Put yours on first before you assist someone else. This is the idea. And here's why I'm, I'm sharing this. I think there's a lot of Christians. There can be a lot of preachers. There could be a lot of, a lot of the people who try to help others in life, and yet they never take time to say, God, heal me. There's a lot of us who say, this person needs to get right with God. This person needs to do this. And it's like, are you right with God? <laughs> there's a side of this where like, we need to take personal inventory. Like, I'm not here to help you before, in a sense, I go, God, I need, I need to experience this myself. All of us should be doing that. Number three, uh, the people were not called to fight the serpents themselves. They're not like, Moses is not like, grab a club, grab a sword, chop off the snake's head, let's go. All right, that's not what happened. That's like my first thought. My first thought is like, I got to kill these things, right? Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not you try to fight this. Not you try to do this. Be strong in the Lord. Let him fight this. Let him do this. And this is hard for those who are like doers. 
and you like to be active and I want to do things, and God's saying, no, no, let me do it. <laughs> you need a rest. Number four, uh, they were not to look to Moses to heal them. They're not to go to Moses and say, Moses might have some secret ointment himself. They were not to look to him. They go to him, and Moses goes, oh, let me go back to God. I can't do anything for you. You see, the Bible says it this way in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one person who can help us. There's one person who can heal us. You know, not myself, not some person you see on TV, not some weird religious guru out there. We go to Jesus. There's a side of this where you say, there's one person who can help me. Let's run to Jesus, the one who was lifted up. And lastly, we see this. Uh, they were not to look at their own wounds. So they're not to like look at their own and fi- fixate on their own. Here's what I mean by that. So often, sin does something to us, and all we do is look at our sin and go, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I went back to that. And we kind of like, just focus on it, and we freak out about it. They're not to look at their own sin. They're to look at the Savior. And there's really a side of this that is so true for me, where I can, I can blow it, I can mess up, and I can kind of get almost like just this condemnation feeling. And I'm not to look to me. I'm to look to my Savior. You're to look to your Savior. He's the only one who can do something. He's the only one who can heal you. So let's just imagine this for a second. Imagine you are living in this time. Imagine these serpents are biting people. Imagine Moses already made the brass serpent, and your buddy's being bit by a snake, and you go, hey, you're bit. He's like, yeah, this really hurts. Starts like convulsed. Like, you're going to die. Like, I know. This is bad. Hey, if you just look at the brass serpent, you'll live. No way, man. Like, why? I'm not going to do something I, don't, I can't really believe in. Like, I, I, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it. Like, but all you have to do is look at it. If you just look at it, you'll, you'll be okay. Like, no, no way. That's just too simple. That is way too simple. It has to be more complicated than that. It has to be more difficult than that. And this is the gospel. If someone's like, what's the gospel? Like, look to Jesus. What do you mean? Look to Jesus. Look to Je- read about Jesus. Learn Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Understand who Jesus is, what he did for you. Look at his life. Look at his ministry. Look at his humility. Look at his life. Study Jesus. Look to Jesus. Like, what, what does that mean? It means you need to look to Jesus. It means open this up. You get to know Jesus. You enjoy Jesus. You spend time with him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, having sat down at the right hand of the Father. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Look to Jesus. That means stare, gaze, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Saying, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Not, this is not, salvation is not this one time. I look, salvation is I'm saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. And so guess what? You look to Jesus the whole time. You look to Jesus at first, throughout your whole life, and when you see him face to face, we're just looking to Jesus. And this is the idea. Look to Jesus. And some people go, no, that's too simple. I'm an intelligent person. <laughs> I'm not going to take how simple this is. And you're saying, yes, I know. It's simple for a child. It's simple for an adult. Look to Jesus. Honestly, for skeptics, for people who are like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, I'd say, have you ever just spent time with Jesus, read about Jesus, looked to Jesus? How did Jesus respond to people who are just sinners doing their thing? Do you see his compassion? Do you see his love? Do you see his grace? Do you see his mercy? Like, you spend time with Jesus. You get to know him. People can say, well, I grew up around this. I would say you need to look to the true Jesus, not the Jesus we heard about. Maybe not the Jesus you heard about your church years ago, but you look to Jesus. He's saying, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And let's just go back to Romans 3, four, or John chapter 3, verse 14, really quick. John 3, verse 14 and 15. What did Jesus say about himself? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, just like they looked at that brass serpent to be saved, just look at me to be saved. That whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, shall have eternal life. 
They looked at this. I mean, imagine how you must have felt silly looking at a brass serpent and going, that's going to save me, and it did. And there's a side where we just look to Jesus and say, he's going to save me, yeah. You believe on Jesus. You trust in Jesus. You give your life to Jesus. There's that side you just look to Jesus, the one who bore the sin of the world, the brass serpent, where sins were judged. We look to Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we're at our worst, that when you gave the middle finger to God and say, I want nothing to do with you, that's when God says, I love you. I gave my life for you. I gave it to you. At the worst moment, I died for you. And that applies to all of us. You know, I love how it's just a simple saying, um, but the value of something is, this, is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. You guys heard of that? The value of something is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. I want you to think about how, how valuable you are to God. It's like, man, what would God redeem us with? The Bible says, not with silver, gold, or corruptible things, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Do you want to know how valuable you are? God's like, let me give you my priceless blood for you. You know, there's something about when you have something to you that's so personal or valuable and someone tries to downplay it and someone tries to like offer you and you're like, what? Like, you don't know how valuable this is to me. So I, the, the cheesy dorky side of me, I have like a coin collection that I've had for a long time. Um, I remember my dad like had a coin collection and he gave it to me and I have some coins and I grew it like over the last 25 years. And if someone came to my house and like looked at my, my nerdy coin collection because that's the nerd side of me uh, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. I'll give you 50 bucks. I'd be like, you spit in my face, get out of my house, <laughs> right? Like that would be so disrespectful. It's like, do you know how priceless this is to me? There, there's a side of this where it's like, we, and here's what I want you to see about the gospel. God's like, I gave, God gave you his, your, his only son, the most precious thing he had. And we're kind of like, well, let me work for it. Let me pay God back. Like, let me, it's like, it makes no sense. I could never, I could never pay God back. I could never work for it. Just receive it. Just receive this priceless gift found in Jesus. Can I tell you on Good Friday, and let's just close with this thought, because on Good Friday, we're not here to like worship the actual wood of the cross. Sometimes the cross itself can become like an emblem maybe we trust in and not the person in the work of the cross? Can I tell you what happened years later to the brass serpent? Years later, hundreds of years later, they kept this brass serpent. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, listen to this. It says, he, Hezekiah, the king of Israel, he broke up the bronze serpent. Hundreds of years later, he broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Neshushtan, whatever. All right, here's the idea. <laughs> The thought to me is interesting. Like 800 years later, they're literally going, this once brought us healing. Let us look to this. And this is what religion does. We kind of make relics out of it. We kind of focus on it rather than the person and the work that took place there. You see, the idea of the brass servant is one of the clearest pictures of God spoke something and we hear in faith and believe and act upon it. It's not about the actual structure of the brass serpent. It's about God said something. Are you going to do it and obey it in faith? So we look at Jesus, the cross itself, this wooden cross is beautiful, but we don't look at that, and that's not my salvation, but it's Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the work on the cross. We can even idolize the cross at times. We can even make that our hope or our salvation, but it's Jesus. Amen? Good Friday is good because of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to close, and please do, we're not going to get distracted, we're not passing out communion, but we're going to have communion. Communion's up front here, off to the sides. I think there's one in the back as well. Here's what we are going to do. Let me just actually put it this way. Um, if they ate of the tree of life, they would have lived forever. Here, here's what communion is to me. On the tree, right before Jesus went to the tree, he goes, if you eat this, if you eat this cracker, which represents my body, if you drink this juice, this wine, that, that represents my blood, he goes, if you do this, you, you partake of me, you'll, you'll walk with me, you'll have life with me. Communion does not save us, but what it speaks of and what it looks to is Jesus and his work on the cross.
and the work of the resurrection. And so here's what I'm trying to say is um, this, in a sense, communion for us is the fruit of the tree. If you think about the fruit of the tree and they ate that, they live forever, the fruit of the tree for us is communion. This is something for us to kind of say, I want to enjoy the fruit of the tree. Because of the tree of Calvary, I can now take his body and take his blood that was shed for my sins, and now I can have life with him. Again, it's not, it's not the actual cup, it's not the actual cracker that saves us, but what it speaks of. And I do believe in so many ways, communion is a great picture of the fruit of the tree of the cross. Amen? And here's what happens. This is like the idea of Passover week. This is where the seders are happening in a lot of people's homes. And they grab this, you know, bread-like cracker thing and they hold it up and say, this is the bread of affliction. And you know what Jesus did that day? He holds it up and says, this is the bread of my affliction. My body's going to be afflicted. Not the people of Israel. I'm redeeming that. I'm going to be afflicted. If you eat of me, my, your sins have been put on my account. I'm absorbing that. Eat of this bread. Eat of the bread of my affliction. So I'm just encourage you guys. We're going to have some worship up here. We're gonna, I'm going to pray. We're going to have some worship. But communion is just up here. Instead of passing out, we figured, hey, why don't you go get it? Listen, this is for believers in Jesus. Why partake of something you don't believe in? There's no pressure. Don't feel the need to take communion because you're here on a good Friday. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't need to take this. But if you say, but I do believe in Jesus, or I want to believe in Jesus, or I am looking to Jesus, then take communion. This is a time for you to go up there and say, Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken for me. Thank you for your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. By your stripes we're healed. We thank you, Jesus. And feel free to take that. But I'm going to say, just like they gathered the manna, you go and gather this, come back to your seat, pray over it, talk to Jesus a little bit, confess sin, enjoy God, thank God for the cross, thank him for what he's done, and then uh, we're going to just close out with some prayer. All right? I'm going to pray. As soon as I say amen, worship will be happening, and then you guys can go grab communion. Cool? Let's do that. Father, we just, um, we are amazed by how the Bible works, that... <laughs> God, whether it's Genesis or Revelation, it all speaks of you, Jesus. It speaks of the cross, the resurrection, the gospel itself. And uh, Lord, we are here right now to look to you, to seek you, to remember the cross. We thank you that we can, we can enjoy the fruit of this tree. God, that we can have communion, community, just relationship with you, God. That there's a side of this where it just we can slow down and remember without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, your blood was shed for our forgiveness. We thank you. We thank you, God, that you set this up years and years ago and that's fulfilled in the cross. So Lord, we're here now just to, to one, reflect, to enjoy, to remember and how our heart longs for Sunday. How this even reminds us, God, the cross is beautiful, but it's agonizing. That the cross is absolutely incredible but Lord, we needed, we needed Resurrection Sunday. And so we just thank you for that as well. So we ask that you just be here, move in this place. Let's enjoy you in your name. Amen. When you guys are ready, feel free to grab communion, come back to your seat, worship, pray over it, and then we'll close with some prayer.